Hello and welcome to the Dispatched Podcast Week in Review. We are at the end of March. We're about to hit April. April Fool's Day, Carol. Woo! <laughs> and it's, it really is April Fool's Day this year, but anyway. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you? I am well, thank you. So what do we got today? All right. I've got a, yeah. Yeah. We've got the things. Okay. <laughs> Day's almost arrived with catch-up reductions to be applied tomorrow. Any late-breaking news? Well, y- yeah, I, I think obviously I think it's appropriate that uh, these prices are falling on the first of April, April Fool's Day, because it is a it's a very clunky, poor policy. Mark Butler has, in many ways, attempted to disassociate himself from it by attributing it to a, an agreement uh, negotiated by his predecessor, which is fair enough. He has had to implement it. Labor did support it in the parliament, so whether or not he can really argue that, sustain that argument, I, I don't know. I think what we do know is that the final outcomes were communicated to the small number of companies with opiate dependence medicines, and it appears that Mark Butler actually exercised the power in that case. So for the hundreds of 300 or so medicines that have Receive some form of relief. That power has been exercised, delegated to health department officials, and exercised by by them. But uh, Minister Butler has exercised power in a small number of cases. So I think that's that's interesting. Kudos to those companies who've fought very cleverly uh, right up to tomorrow. And frankly, I'm not sure they finished fighting yet. So mm. so. I am curious as to how the government proposes imposing legislative price cuts on a program that doesn't exist in law. I, because as we know, there's no legislative instrument for the ODTP. Mm. The government, well, the Department of Health, has known about this for at least four years, and it's still not fixed. Hopefully, it's fixed in the budget. But I will be very curious to see how they how they do this because there's no legislative instrument yet. So uh, I think the department refers to the document as an internal document. So uh, that will be very interesting and it looks like another freedom of information request to try and get a copy of it. But Mm. So in the end, yes, Mr Butler did exercise this power in a small number of cases. A select few. Mm. Okay. Doubts are starting to emerge over the Albanese government's commitment to its election promise to expand Australia's newborn screening programs. Should we be, wor- we be worried? Yeah, we should be very worried about this. The, the news is that the very clear commitment to expand Australia's existing program to bring it into line with world's best practice for about 80 diseases, it's not going to be very easy. They undertook to do it from this year. July 1. And it appears that that's not going to happen. And, in fact, as far as I can tell from what I've heard and what I've seen, this is a status quo (laughs) outcome. They're going to try and get alignment across the existing state and territory programs, okay? But then they're still going to require this ridiculous process that patient groups have to submit to MSAC. So we're still talking the disease by disease. Each disease has to be approved, go through its own MSAC approval process. Correct. So it's right, the status so quo. That's going to be a quick and easy process. <laughs> and then in the end, I don't know how the Commonwealth proposes to compel the jurisdictions to add these diseases. Mm. So I, ca- I can't see how it's not going to be another process where patients have to wait two to three years. Yeah. And that they're competing with each other. So it's pretty disappointing if this is the outcome. 
definitely not the 80 diseases rolled out on 1st July that we were promised. Well, it's a broken commitment, yeah. pure and simple. And I have to say, I, I am starting to see concerning signs about the minister's willingness to be a minister. Yeah. We've seen it with Patient Pathways Program. We've seen it with newborn screening now. I think there is a couple of other things, diabetes tenders, where the department is just getting its way, even if it means going back on an election promise. Yeah. And does the minister see himself as the minister, as the decision maker, or does he see himself as the administrator helping the department to secure the outcomes that it wants. I worked for two health ministers. Uh, one was very clearly the minister and another one was an administrator. Yeah. And I can tell you the administration approach to the health portfolio does not work because it will get away from you. Yeah. Stakeholders get angry. Uh, you don't impose yourself on officials. And frankly, I don't know how much more evidence we need to agree, to acknowledge that the health department is not the font of all knowledge in this stuff. It makes a lot of mistakes. It makes a hell of, hell of a lot of mistakes. That's before you get to their conduct uh, towards stakeholder groups. So it could be a case of the office is still coming to terms with its role and understanding how to engage the bureaucracy. Yep. That's not an easy thing. But I just I see some worrying signs and this this – backing out of what was a pretty clear commitment on newborn screening follows the backing out on patient pathways, the treatment of CCDR and a few other things. And it's uh, concerning and, yes, we should all be worried. I know that Better Access Australia <laughs> is um, has already come out and said some pretty fierce things about this. Yeah, and I think – definitely picked up the fight. Yeah, I think, I think that organisation has every right to because – when you <laughs> when you derive a significant political advantage by standing up with patients at a hospital with children and promising mm. to do something, cuddling babies, cuddling via social babies. media, and saying, "Hey, <laughs> look at the future that we're giving this child." You challenge the coalition to adopt your policy, and then you go back on it yourself. Yeah, it's not too late to address this, but yes, I do think the signs are very worrying. The idea that patients are going to have to go through the the wet concrete, which mm. is the MSAC process, because Australia's application of the HTA is a natural-born enemy of screening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've seen that with all sorts of programs. Well, it's not cost-efficient. It, it can't be. It's It literally can't be because it, it's there's a high upfront cost and it leads to more treatment yeah. and intervention. But, you know, it saves lives. But well, yeah, there is money. that. But, you know, th th we saw this with the prenatal screening for spinal muscular atrophy Yeah, where they said, well, this is cost-effective because it's going to lead to fewer births and less treatment. That was the only reason it was cost-effective. And that's not me paraphrasing what they said. That's what they said. Yeah. And so I don't know how, these, how patient groups are meant to navigate this process. Uh, and that $38 million, which is set aside in the budget <laughs> for this particular process. Yeah. Where's that going? Well, that's a really good question. I know the department has already spent a couple of million on it. Oh, goodness knows what. But that's right. That's a that's a budgeted measure at eight eight and a half million dollars a year. Now, if you are having to go through the MSEC process, the cost of adding 
you can't budget the cost of something that hasn't been recommended. Yeah. It's like a PBS listing. The government doesn't really account for a lot of future PBS listings because they don't know. Mm. They, they wait until a recommendation comes and then, then they find the money. So I don't know what's going to happen to this money, whether it gets refri- you know, phased or, or something else happens. We, we will see, but uh, I, I am very, very worried about this. Doesn't bode well, does it? No, no, it doesn't. Okay, questions from you guys. Why do you think the government will seek to re-establish reference pricing links that are broken by the catch-ups? Wouldn't that be unfair? <laughs> yeah, well, fairness is such a subjective thing. <laughs> it's, it's a short answer. <laughs> yes, well, it depends fair to whom. Mm. So one of the consequences of tomorrow's catch-up reduction day is it's going to break what has been a long-standing policy, arguably implemented through law, that – the government pays one price for different brands of a medicine under reference pricing rules. Now, those rules have changed and modified over the years. But what it means that tomorrow is that you've got different brands of the one drug priced differently. And the most perverse example of that is where you've got recently listed, you've got originated biologics that will be priced below their biosimilars. So it's contradictory to biosimilar policy. But I, I truly believe that government will now go back and seek to reimpose those linkages. Now, they're not going to do that by bringing the price of the cheaper ones up. They're going to bring them all down to a level. And they have triggers to do that. We've written about it this morning, which is PBAC recommendations. They could do it formally. They could just get the PBAC to reissue all of these new recommendations so they could go back and impose all these price reductions. It's much easier to impose price reductions on PBS-listed medicines now because they've removed the need for a price agreement. Yep. So they could do it systematically and I suspect it's going to raise – it would raise a lot of money. Now, is it unfair? Well, arguably, yes, to some of these companies it is unfair, but the the problem is that the industry negotiated this pricing framework with the catch-up mechanism without fully understanding its application Mm. and the long-term implications of that. So, yes, tomorrow's reductions are going to hit a lot of companies and have already cost a lot of jobs and, and patient access to some medicines. But it's going to continue to reverberate and we haven't yet got to all those reverberations. But I do think in a, in a time of fiscal challenge and difficulty, if the government, if the minister and the health portfolio can see $500 million or whatever, simply by reimposing an existing policy, then... I I think objectively you'd say that they would almost certainly seek to do it. And then that's going to have all of these second-order second effects. Uh, but And it could take them a year, it could take them two years to do it, but I'm, I, I have absolutely no doubt that they will do it. Yes, it will be unfair. Uh, it'll certainly be perceived as unfair for companies. It's, it's going to be out there, <laughs> very clear, and I think the temptation will be too great. Yeah. Okay, and lastly, what are the lessons we should learn from the whole process leading up to tomorrow's catch-up reductions? Yeah, that's a good question. Half answered that in the previous <laughs> answer. The industry negotiated this change. Yeah. And the wording of the agreement, its agreements, and the enabling legislation is clear. Concerns were raised at the time and they were not they were dismissed. I think the lesson has to be that these policy dialogues are not – they're difficult and challenging exercises because you're dealing with an interlocutor who fundamentally wants to use these processes to advance their own interests, what they see as their own interests. 
often that does not align with what industry or even patient groups want. I think industry is often, it's at the wrong starting point. It approaches these things with the wrong mindset. This is a classic example where Greg Hunt invited them to a meeting in the middle of 2020 and invited them to extend their agreements. And frankly, anyone with any experience of government decision-making knows that when a minister approaches you in the weeks before a budget wanting to give you something, it means <laughs> he's planning to take something away and you should avoid those meetings <laughs> as much as you can. And we get described as cynical, negative. No, we are, we are realistic. Yeah. And my frustration is that tomorrow's price reductions and all of the calamitous 12 months we've had in preparing for it was entirely predictable and could have been managed in, in a different way. And I'm seeing the same mistakes in the approach to the HTA review. This process is not designed, that review process is not designed so that the government is going to give the industry what it wants. It is a process that is going to use to get the industry to agree to what it wants. In a policy environment, there's value in obfuscation, in delay, in not engaging, in not involving yourself in processes. You don't have the levers at your disposal and you're dealing with someone who has all of the power. If you look at health policy and particularly in reimbursement for health technologies, one party holds 100% of the power except in very small number of circumstances. So even if you look at areas like cystic fibrosis where a company has developed a drug that government really wants, it is still an excruciating and difficult process. Mm and involves one, two years, three years even, to get to get the outcome because government and its officials fundamentally want things on their terms. Yeah. And if you just go into these processes, whether it's a price negotiation or a review process, with that as the starting point in knowing what you're dealing with, then the world will open up for you. You'll they be in a much better position. Friends. They're not your friends. And you'll be in a much better position to get the outcome you want. Unfortunately, the, often the industry goes into these discussions with its sort of doe-eyed, very positive, and look, optimistic, and it's very energetic to be around, you know, because they're always looking for positive ways forward. But it is a deadly dangerous mindset to take into a policy discussion, which, <laughs> which is more like negotiating with a Middle East dictator. You know, you, they do not want to give you what you want and they see they see your positivity and, frankly, at times naivety as a weakness and a vulnerability yeah. that they're going to take to advantage of. So, yeah, so I think the lesson is the industry's got, got to toughen up a little bit. And I'm not talking about starting fights with government or anything. I'm just talking about understanding the, wor- the world you're in. And, and I know that's hard and I know it makes a lot of people uncomfortable but you'll get much better outcomes if you go into processes understanding <laughs> understanding that they're not designed to give you what you want and they are going to use these processes ruthlessly to get what they want. And if you start from that point, it allows you to embark on these things in a way that's going to better equip you to get the outcome that you want or at least to move the flags down the field a little bit. Mm -hmm. Okay, Carol, well, thank you. 
it is. <laughs> have a lovely weekend. You too, Paul. And uh, have a lovely weekend to everyone in the audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the podcast. The audience is really starting to build and we really like the engagement and the feedback. So please keep that coming.